When the Imperial War Museum released the incredible sound recording of the end of the war, something in particular struck many people. It wasn't necessarily the sound of the guns falling silent, but just how quickly the birds began to sing. Every community in Scotland was affected. Portobello lost many of its sons, killed in Gallipoli as well as the Western Front. When I spoke to historian Trevor Royal, he was at pains to stress the importance of remembrance. I think it's very important for generations to look back at the past and come to terms with what's happened and to try and make sense of it. Now, in the case of the First World War, I think it's doubly important because the First World War had a fantastic impact on Scotland. I mean, you could almost say, looking back at the 20th century, that it began in 1914 with the outbreak of the First World War and it ended in 1991 with the collapse of um, communism and the end of the Cold War confrontation with the Soviet Union. So from that point of view, it has had a tremendous impact on Scotland, on the Scottish people, and on the way we see ourselves today. And let's not forget that in the summer of 1914, there was a Home Rule Bill on the statute books, and it looked as though it was going to go through, but it got swept away by the greater tide of conflicts in Europe. So just imagine what it would have been like if Scotland had got Home Rule in 1914. We'd be a very different country today. Well, we would, yes. But I travel around Scotland a lot, and you find war memorials in every single village. And with some of them, it's fairly obvious that almost in, an entire generation of that village was wiped out. You know, we didn't really commemorate some individual dead with war memorials until the First World War, but such was the scale of the slaughter. I mean, we now know that we've got a pretty good idea now of how many Scots died in the First World War due to the excellent work being done by the Scottish National War Memorial up in the castle. And these names are going to be um, put, put on the side of the Scottish Parliament um, this weekend. And we know it's about 137,000. So this is killing on an industrial scale and wherever you go in Scotland you do not you find that every community suffered it does seem that there was a certain randomness to it wasn't it look at the scottish regiments they're largely territorial i mean the black watch um, recruits from the Tayside area, Perthshire, Angus, Fife, the Royal Scots um, recruit from Edinburgh and the Lothians. And all round Scotland, there were 10 infantry regiments at the beginning of the war. All of them represented a specific Scottish area. Now, put it this way, if a rifle company, 120 men, were going into the attack and they were shot by a German machine gunner, and a lot of them got killed, then that German machine gunner would have killed not only a number of men, he was also damaged a very fragile community somewhere in Scotland. Just thinking locally, I can't think that there would be a Portobello regiment precisely, but... Well, the local regiment for Portobello was the Royal Scots. And uh, one of the great things that has happened in Portobello, and this has been reflected across Scotland, repeated across Scotland, it's not just in Portobello, but in Portobello it's particularly interesting. The pupils at Portobello High School peopled the school's war memorial. In other words, instead of just looking at the names of young men who were killed in the First World War, they've built up a pretty coherent picture of what these young boys were like. So they become not dusty names on a memorial, but living, vibrant young men. And the majority of those young men were territorial Royal Scots, 
and some of them died in Gallipoli. So you've got a pretty good picture of what happened to these young men when they joined the army, when they went off to fight on the main battlefronts, in their case, either the Western Front or Gallipoli, and there they lost their lives. A long way from Gallipoli to Portobello. Looking back, was the First World War actually inevitable? Well, it became inevitable. If you look at, if you read the diplomatic papers relating to that summer of 1914, there's an inevitability about what's going to happen. It's almost like watching a car crash in slow motion. You can see that it's going to happen, and everybody's powerless to stop at once. Um, there was this confrontation between the great powers, amongst the great powers, and it almost became inevitable that it was going to end in a clash. So if you think about the the competition between Britain and Germany, for example, in terms of the navies, you yeah. could see that build-up happening? Yes, naval supremacy was very important. And, of course, uh, Germany was a, was a virtual newcomer. I mean, they'd only been in existence since 1871. Prior to that, there'd been a collection of Germanic states, but the state of Germany only came into being in 1871. And under successive kings, William I and then William II, they had a tremendous imperative to become the greatest country in the world. And, of course, their greatest rival in that respect was Britain. And the second rival to them, because it was the closest neighbour, was France. And as the tensions built up amongst these countries, it became inevitable that they were going to go to war. It could have been stopped by diplomatic means. There's no doubt about it that if there'd been some clear-headed minds and some people committed to not going to war as the first resort, something could have um, been done to stop it. Other thing about it is that when you look at Europe in that summer of um, 1914, there was almost a holiday atmosphere, as if um, you know people were looking forward for, oh, what a lovely war, well, as Joan Littlewood did in her famous play and, and later film, the anti-war film, the great anti-war film of the First World War, that there was that sort of, uh, it's going to happen, let's get it over and done with. That's why people started thinking about the war would be over by Christmas. They thought it was going to be a short, sharp campaign. Instead, it turned, as you said a few moments ago, into the most, the greatest industrial slaughter we've ever seen. Yes, once the war of movement stopped, once the Germans had been stopped up, by the Channel Coast in their attack on Paris, the front line was cemented, literally in some places, between the Channel Coast and the Swiss border. I mean, a long, winding snake of a border which um, became heavily fortified and which stopped any war of a movement. And once that happened, at the end of 1914, it became impossible for generals on either side to find a strategy which they would be able to break that deadlock. In fact, that went on for a very long time, and there's been a suggestion that actually it was new thinking from the Canadians and the Australians, plus the fresh blood, if I can use that ghastly phrase, of the Americans, which actually was the turning point in 1918. Yes, and there was also um, the other thing that happens. War is the great bringer of change. We've never yet had a war in world history where 
innovation hasn't come along as a result of the fighting. And in the First World War, by 1918, you had um, the advent of powerful aircraft, which gave commanders for the first opportunity of seeing on the other side of the hill. This um, helped with uh, target recognition. It made sure that artillery, instead of firing blindly or with your fingers crossed behind your back, could actually fire at predicted targets. Radio telegraphy had improved so that people could... um, overcome this terrible problem which beset commanders in the early part of the war of not being able to communicate with the front line motor transport and the tank the tank made its weight felt in the dying years of the of the war was first used in 1916 but by 1918 these tanks were were mobile people knew how to use them they could work them into the tactics of of the day and make sure that they were a help rather than a hindrance so Yes, the new thinking on the part of our dominions, that did help, but um, the biggest change by 1918 was, um, well, the innovations brought by engineering, scientific and technical progress. Of course, scientific and technical progress also brought ghastly things like gas warfare. Yes, I mean, we've, we invented better ways to kill, kill each other. And that's ever been, it's ever been thus in, in warfare. Um, the side which um, manages to develop the most efficient weapons and create the most efficient tactics is going to stand a better chance of uh, winning than the side that doesn't do that. Of course, this was described as the war to end all wars, which proved not at all prophetic. Well, at the end of the war, nobody really knew what to, to call it. It was always it was known as the Great War for Freedom. It only became the First World War, really, when the Second World War broke out in 1939. And it's a ghastly continuum of the 20th century that the armistice, when it came in November 1918, put a stop to the fighting. There's no doubt about that. The fighting stopped on the Western Front. It didn't really mark the end of the war because the conditions were left open for the war to begin again. And alas, with the rise of Hitler in the 1930s, it all started all over again and war became inevitable. Second World War broke out. And from there, we were pushed into the stalemate of the Cold War. That's why I said earlier that there is this short 20th century, 1914 to 1991. And of course, there's another, dare I say, cliche, which is those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. <laughs> and there is a fear that there is something building at the moment. Well, that's right. We still haven't found a way of settling confrontation other than warfare. And yet, if you look at recent history of post-1945 history, one of the reasons why the Cold War didn't become hot was that people were so terrified that if it became hot and if a third world war broke out, it would be terminal. And it would be terminal because by this point we developed um, thermonuclear weapons which were capable not just of defeating the other side but also of blowing the, wor- the, the, the world to smithereens. But it also makes this remembrance this 100th Remembrance, all the more important. Yes, and for that reason, one of the things that has um, cheered me, that one of the great emphases that's being made across the country is that people are looking back and wondering about who these young people were. Now, take the church, St. Philip's, across the road there. Uh, Stuart Weaver and his uh, congregation on Armistice Sunday, their Boys Brigade Company is going to read out the names of 90 young men associated with the church who went off to war in the First World War and didn't come back. And I think if we can keep that sort of focus, it makes it uh, 
all the more difficult to support any movement which is going to take us back into armed confrontation and see thousands of young people being needlessly killed. The service at what most of us still think of as St Philip's is not the only event in Portobello. Belfield Celebration Hall, formerly Portobello Old Parish Church, will host an event on Sunday afternoon to commemorate the part that Portobello played in the First World War. Another local historian, Archie Foley, co-author of Portobello and the Great War, will give a talk.